The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week we look at two great women artists. At last we visit the postponed Artemisia exhibition at the National Gallery in London and we also explore a new biography of Frida Kahlo. Before we come to Artemisia and Frida, the art newspaper has launched a new three-part online live event series beginning on the 8th of October. In the series, called New Models for New Times, Rethinking the Art Market in a Changing World, we'll explore how the art market is not only adapting, but expanding. Join us as we talk to industry experts about why galleries of all sizes are teaming up to try out new ideas, the shift to the so-called glocal, and what the art world can do to prepare for what could be a radically different future. You can register for the events at theartnewspaper.com. Now, the National Gallery in London is presenting the first ever exhibition in the UK dedicated to Artemisia Gentileschi. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that we first talked about this show in January 2019. Later, it was announced amid fervent anticipation that it would open in April this year. But then the COVID-19 lockdown meant it was postponed, which seemed a terrible injustice given the unprecedented nature of the show. But this week, at last, it opens. I went to the National Gallery to take a tour of the highlights of Artemisia with its curator, Letizia Treves. Letizia, before we start talking about individual works, I'd really like to set the scene a bit, because we know, and we'll come on to it, that Artemisia was the victim of a terrible, violent assault. But it was a violent time, wasn't it? And can you set that scene? Because because Italy was consumed with violence, it seems to me. It was, and I think Rome especially, actually. And something you don't really often think about is that artists were in this odd position where they sort of move between two worlds, the sort of really rough, brawling underbelly of society in Rome on the one hand, but then also mixing with the greatest patrons, collectors uh, of the time. And they sort of had to bridge these two worlds. And Orazio, Artemisia's father, certainly did that. But not Artemisia. Artemisia grew up in her father's house. Her mother died when she was young, and she was effectively pretty housebound. You know, we know this from the transcript that survives from the rape trial. We get a great sense of what it was like in Orazio's house and studio. And she was definitely shut away. It's something she described as noxious. Right. And so, I mean, and Orazio was a bit of a rogue, right? I mean, he, he was very controlling, quite an irascible character. You know, we have sort of contemporary witness statements describing him as a difficult man. I mean, he was a friend of Caravaggio's um, and, you know, they, they, they'd gone to trial over some scurrilous verses that they'd written. Um, but that was not so different from, you know, most artists in Rome at the time. And what about the art historical setting? Because obviously you mentioned Caravaggio there, of course there were the Caracci. So who were the most dominant artists that would have influenced first Orazio and then, and then Artemisia? Well, I think Artemisia was born in 1593. So those sort of formative years where she's training with her father, which is the very first decade of the 17th century, um, it's absolutely Caravaggio who's the kind of defining artist on her father's work. And then obviously that's passed to Artemisia. I think one of the most sort of obvious things is this very strong naturalism in painting figures directly from life. You know, um, Artemisia, like Orazio, must have drawn, must have made drawings, but none of these survive. And 
But what we can see from their paintings is they made a lot of changes while they painted. They were clearly painting from, from live people. And then there's this very sort of strong lighting. So you really see that in Orazio's works at the beginning of the century. And of course, that's passed on to Artemisia. Was he her only teacher? Yes. Uh, I mean, what we know is that she must have started training probably age sort of 12, 13, 14, alongside her brothers, her three younger brothers. But interestingly, she's the only one who has a sort of independent career of her father. Her, her brothers carry on working for Azio. They actually come with him to London to the court of Charles I, whereas Artemisia definitely forges her own career path. So let's begin talking about the paintings. We're in front of the first extant painting of her career, and she's amazingly just 17, which I can't believe looking at this. I know, I, I can't quite believe it either. <laughs> I mean, whenever you see pictures of this, it doesn't quite prepare you for what you feel when you stand in front of it. And I think that's because also the figures are life-size, you know, it has incredible physical presence. And she is just 17 when she paints this. It's, it's dated 1610. But we know that she was painting independently by the time she was 16. Orazio writes a letter to the Grand Duchess in, in Florence and says, uh, this is a letter that he writes in 1612 and says, my daughter's been painting for three years and she has no equal. And then you look at this picture and it's a, you know, you absolutely Spot understand <laughs> why he says that. You wonder whether he's exaggerating, but he wasn't. Um, it's incredibly accomplished. And, and in style, it's, it's extremely close to Orazio's, you know, painting style. You have to remember that you know she wasn't exposed to many other artists and so what she learns from painting she learns from Orazio and that's why in the room across the way I have a picture by Orazio painted in the studio when Artemisia's apprentice to kind of so you can sort of compare the two but I think you can already see what Artemisia brings that's different and this is a an Old Testament subject of Susanna being, bathing in her garden, being spied upon by two elders. It's a subject you see frequently represented but I think for me, what's different about this is there's a real understanding of how the female body works. This is a real body, you know, the sort of uh, fall of the flesh. And, you know, it feels very real. And the other thing is that she, she puts herself in the shoes of her protagonist. So she imagines what the young, vulnerable Susanna would be feeling. And there's a sort of truthfulness in it, which I think really does set her apart. I mean, they're called the elders, obviously, but there's one who's conspicuous, the younger. Do you have any truck with this notion that it might be a portrait of the man who assaulted her, Agostino Tassi? I mean, I think it certainly seems quite plausible. I mean, she, this picture was painted in 1610, and so it's just months before she's raped by Agostino Tassi, and she was no doubt you know, the victim of sexual assault for some months before that. She was being sexually harassed by him and by Cosimo Quarli, another associate of her father's who was much older. So there is this theory that these two men sort of in some sense reflect. I think... I think you've kind of got to the crux of one of the real problems with Artemis is that, that so much of her life is read into her paintings. And I, I, I do think it's a hugely grey area. You know, I think she does bring her lived experiences to her paintings. You can't completely separate the two. But I think one has to be careful not to, to sort of push it too far. And, and let's talk about the transcript of the rape trial then, which is in a vitrine right next to this painting that we're talking about. This is the first time it's been shown in public, is that right? That's right. It's never been seen in public before. It's often cited, it's, it's been transcribed, you know, and obviously this episode in Artemisia's life is something that, that many people know about. I felt it was important. In fact, it, it was sort of a late addition to the show, in a sense. At the beginning of this year, I 
the more I thought about it, the more I realised, you know, I really wanted to bring Artemisa's personality out in this show. So we have her voice through her letters. And, and it seemed to me that the, the transcript of the trial is someone writing verbatim what's coming out of her mouth. And, and, and in a way, that's the earliest point in her life that we're in touch with Artemisa's voice. So I felt it was a sort of sensitive way and a non-sensational way of treating the subject of her rape, um, but also giving her her voice. We're going to go into the next room now. We're standing in front of an astonishing pairing of two paintings of Judith beheading Holofernes. Tell us about these. So it's a great highlight of the exhibition, obviously, to have these two pictures side by side. It's the first time that's happened in this country. I think it's the first time the Uffizi pictures ever been shown here. Um, I felt it was very important to try and unite them here. I mean, you get the full force of uh, of her her sort of interpretation of this story, this really unflinching account of the story. Again, rather like Susanna, it's a very well-known Old Testament subject. Um, it's incredibly gory, and she doesn't sort of shy away from the horror of what we see. Um, but I think you also get a sense of what she brings to the subject that other people don't. I mean, Caravaggio also painted this subject in a really horrific and violent way. But his Judith isn't so convincing. She's rather statuesque, completely unemotional. And here, I think, what Artemisia does is she, she imagines, she puts herself in the shoes of her protagonist, and she imagines what would it take for Judith to actually do this terrible act. So she changes the story. You know, the maidservant, instead of being outside the tent, keeping watch, waiting with the bag, ready to put the head in the bag, she brings her inside the tent, and, the, and she's sort of pinning Holofernes down. She's a real, you know, she's an accomplice. They're in this together. And for me, this picture is all about the physical struggle, you know, just how hard it is for them to overcome him. It's about female agency. It's about determination, about resolve. And I think the violence of it... It is really shocking. And, you know, in the 17th century, it, it, it you know, the, the, the Florentine biographer said that it, it sort of evoked non poco terrore, a lot of horror. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you look closely, it's this sort of blood spilling down the bedsheets, spurting onto her bodice and onto her chest. And that's a really unique invention on Artemisia's part. And even I love this detail of, of Judith with one hand is clasping his hair and you can see the tufts of hair poking through her fingers. And then with the other, she's sort of brandishing the sword. And you can see the way the hilt of the sword is sort of pressing on the flesh of his arm. You can feel the force of it. You know, it's a really powerful picture. And this was a kind of painterly manifesto, right, to, to impress a great, in, uh, august Florentine collector. I mean, I see this picture very much as a sort of showpiece for Cosimo. I mean, it, we don't know its early history, but it is now in the Uffizi. And, you know, it was almost certainly in the Medici collection since the beginning. I mean, it's often seen also as a sort of revenge in paint against Hassi. And, you know, I, I, I think in some ways that sort of dilutes the impact that Artemisia had as an artist. I think we have to be careful not to just read her pictures through that lens of, of the episode uh, of her rape. Um, but she must have, you know, relished the opportunity to paint a woman overcoming a man. I mean, it's, it's also very interesting because it's signed very clearly in the corner. It says, Ego Artemisia Lomi Fecit. I, Artemisia Lomi, made this. And that's interesting too. Not only is that very prominent, but Lomi is the name she adopted in Florence. It was the name of her paternal grandfather. And the reason she does that is to sort of remind the Florentines that she's a fellow Tuscan. You know, she's her family, one of them. She's one of them. The family were from Pisa. And, you know, she soon drops that when she returns to Rome. And it's just a very clever marketing strategy. 
I love this detail as well that it's mentioned in a letter to Galileo. And uh, this seems to me to be instructive of the fact that we know that Artemisia was lost to us through our history for a long time, but in her own time she knew many illustrious people. She did, and I think in Florence, I mean, I called this room the exhibition Becoming Artemisia in Florence because it's where she really steps out of her father's shadow. It's where she starts to become the artist that she would then sort of grow into. And she joined the the Artists' Academy in Florence in 1616, and she was the first woman to do so in the Academy's 50-year history. And that, of course, meant she was able to meet these really important intellectuals and cultural figures as well as contemporary artists. And, of course, that's something she'd never been exposed to in Rome. Now, in the same room, we've got a cluster, a constellation of stars which feature Artemisia in various guises, but very clearly are self-portraits. Tell us about this group that you've gathered here. So, uh, obviously, the inspiration for this exhibition is the National Gallery's own self-portrait of St Catherine. Um, so she's sort of at the very heart of this and it it is really thrilling to actually see it for the first time, it was only discovered in 2017, for the first time alongside other paintings by Artemisia and these pictures were actually made in quick succession, in fact they were probably made in the studio you know, alongside each other Um, but this idea again of the sort of putting yourself into your pictures, I think that you know, there is a tradition of artists in Florence doing that, Um, but I think there's a practical consideration, I think you know, it's a lot more it's a lot easier, a lot cheaper to just look in a mirror and paint yourself. But I think um, in addition to that, it, it is a marketing tool, you know, rather like Rembrandt putting himself in his pictures uh, dressed in different guises. I think she knew that by sort of disseminating her image through her art, she could really help spread her fame. Would patrons have requested portraits of herself? Well, so at this point, we don't know if this choice of putting herself in her pictures was hers or whether it was a patron's request. And we don't know the circumstances around the commission of the National Gallery's self-portrait. But we do know the the, the self-portrait as a lute player uh, was owned by the Medici. And it probably records a real-life event because we know that a signora Artemisia, dressed as a gypsy, uh, to perform, to sing and dance in the Ballo delle Zingare, the dance of the gypsies at the Medici court in 1615. Uh, and so this almost certainly records that, that event. Let's go into the next room. This room is, is, would you argue it's the most biographical room in the show to a certain degree because you're sort of, um, there's portraits of her, there's letters by her, you're sort of setting the scene around her a little bit more. I think what I wanted to do in this room was to give a sense of just in the seven years since she left Rome, she has transformed into this celebrity, basically. So she comes back to Rome and then suddenly patrons are sort of desperately wanting to collect her pictures by her hand. But they're also commissioning portraits of her. So she's actually a kind of subject of kind of fascination, you know. So there's a beautiful medal. There's an engraving after her. There's a, a gorgeous drawing of her hand, a very sophisticated drawing, a sort of portrait of Artemisia's hand. It's beautiful. Um, and, of course, a painted portrait by Vouet, of her um so is this kind of renewed celebrity which i wanted to bring to the fore and i called it the hand of the famed artemisia because not only did they want things by her hand but there is this exceptional group of letters where we get to see her handwriting and this is no small thing you know i mean i think for someone who's become a sort of icon we're reminded that she's a real person and as i said before i really wanted her personality her character to come out and these letters are very personal. They're written to her Florentine lover. And it was very hard choosing which ones to show, but I think I I wanted to sort of 
drawn them to illustrate you know her wit her vulnerability her grief when her little boy dies and her passion and I think they really do that very vividly I think that this point in her life is is very convulsive, isn't it? She's she left Florence on horseback, right? Sped out of Florence on horseback, like like some and fell great... fell off her horse. And yes, her husband writes a letter saying, you know, she fears nothing. There you go. And 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 so and and she's also, in, as you say, she has a, an aristocratic lover. She has a husband who's completely aware of this aristocratic lover. So she's, you know, it, there's a sort of sense of tumult, emotional tumult. And as you say, she loses a child at this time. So, um, how does that affect her work? Well, I think what happens in the 1620s is she starts, she basically embarks on this period of her life where she's basically alone, actually. Um, Orazio leaves Rome very soon after Artemis's arrival. I mean, I, I think it probably has to do with the fact that he can't quite stand the fact that she's found this sort of success. I mean, she was certainly at that point probably more successful than he. Um, and she probably separates from her husband soon after because there's no mention of him after 1623. So it's really her and her daughter Prudencia who remain, and the 1620s are a period of, of, of great success and where she continues to paint these, these beautiful pictures with you know, feature female protagonists, and that's what the next room of the exhibition's about. Let's go and have a look at one. So, to my mind, this is one of the boldest pictures in the show, and a, it's a show with lots of bold pictures in it, <laughs> um, but, but it's an image of Lucretia. Tell us about this. So, the story is told by the Roman poet, Livy, and it shows Lucretia, who, after being raped by Sextus Tarquinius, decides to take her own life, and in the story, she, she does this in the presence of her husband and her father. But what Artemisia does is she zooms right in. There's nobody else in this picture. So we're entirely focused on Lucretia. And actually, the very tight crop really brings us quite uncomfortably close to Lucretia's final moments. And as she's looking heavenwards, in one hand, she's sort of clasping her breast, and in the other, she's, she's holding the dagger. And, I mean, going back to this idea of sort of lived experience and what Artemisia brings to these subjects... I think here she would certainly have felt some sort of empathy for this heroine. I mean, she herself having been the victim of, of sexual assault. And I think, you know, in this room where we're surrounded by these sort of powerful female heroes, you're reminded that, that this is what collectors wanted from Artemisia. They knew by commissioning, you know, paintings in which there were these sort of strong female protagonists, they would get something different from her. And, you know, this is really her unique selling point, and she knew it. And, and certainly a picture like Lucretia, which is sort of very violent, but then like the Magdalene and Ecstasy beside it, very erotic, you know. I think collectors knew, I mean, I think there was an additional appeal in having pictures, you know, showing violence or nudity that were actually painted by a woman, you know. I think, I think that certainly was, was another layer of sort of collectability. And, of course, there's the sort of, again, you, you talked about the clasping of the hair in the uh, earlier picture now the way she's clasping that dagger and again it recalls a moment from the transcript of the trial yeah. where she she held a knife against when Tassie was assaulting mm. her so so again it's 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 very very difficult to sort of um disentangle the life and the work isn't it it is very um and I think you know it's so interesting I, when you look at a picture like this with different people people feel that it, it reflects her life to different degrees. There's something very personal about Artemisia. You know, I, I, I tend to take the middle road. <laughs> um, but actually, going back to, to the similarities or differences with the Judith, uh, I think from a technical point of view here, she's very self-assured. There's this sort of 
revisiting of Caravaggio's naturalism. There's a kind of forcefulness to these pictures from the 1620s. And it's very refined stylistically. It's very strongly lit, very forceful. But then when you get close also, she, she's, she's enveloped in this sort of red velvet uh, drapery, which has this wonderful little gold-tasseled fringe, and it's sort of caressing her thigh. I mean, she has a beautiful eye for sort of sensual detail. Uh, there's also a picture of Susanna in the same room where she's trying to conceal her nakedness, and the cuff of her, her, of her shirt is just trailing in the water. You know, there's, there's some really beautiful details uh, and, you know, she's so good at sort of combining that kind of very f- impactful overall feel in a picture, but also, you know, bringing, teasing out some really sort of truthful. I mean, is it, is it as simple as she's back in Rome? So she's going to the church where she always used to see the Caravaggio and Caravaggio sort of comes back into her life in that way. I mean, is, it, is that too, too simple? No, I think sort of to a degree. But I think also we have to remember in the 1620s when she's in Rome, um, this is sort of the height of fashion of these kinds of pictures, you know, collectors are collecting Caravaggio's paintings and in fact it's from this period that her only candlelight scene uh, dates from and you know we don't really know who Artemisia was mixing with in Rome but we think she was actually frequenting the, the kind of northern the foreigners so the Dutch and the Flemish artists um, at that time in Rome and of course people like Gerrit van Honthorst, Adam Elsheimer they were all painting candlelight scenes um, so I think she's very much influenced by other artists around her and the kind of desires of the patrons in the cities in which she worked. Great. We're going to skip the bit where she goes to Venice and now go to Naples. So we're standing in front of the birth of St John the Baptist, which is one of the paintings she made in Naples, which of course was then connected to Spain. Mm-hmm. So, can, And I wanted to talk about this because, again, it, it's, it, it tells us about the breadth of the patrons that were mm. um, collecting her work and showing her work. Yeah, she, so she moves to Naples in 1630, and as you say, Naples is under Spanish rule, and so it opens doors for her. You know, she works both for patrons within Naples, but also, you know, in the Spanish kingdoms. And here, this is a painting she paints for the King of Spain, for Philip IV, and it's one painting that belongs to a cycle of six, a lot that she painted alongside other artists. Um, and these scenes show episodes from the life of John the Baptist, and she's being given this one, she paints the, the birth and the naming of John the Baptist. What I find so interesting is that the Baptist parents are completely marginalised. So you can just see in the corner, Elizabeth is sort of recovering in bed. and Really um, in the shadows, so very barely much. visible. Yes, very much. And then his father is, is busy scribbling away on a piece of paper trying to write down his name. And it's a picture that entirely focused on the group of midwives who are tending round the baby. It's a very sort of feminine... Um, take on this moment and one of them sort of testing the water they're about to give him a bath another one's bringing a sort of chipped ceramic bowl full of water and you know you sort of almost forget the scale of this picture it's very domestic and very intimate uh, I even look at the furniture one of the midwives is sitting on this kind of low straw chair you know there's something very sort of familiar about it um, uh, and I think that's something that she really brings to these sorts of scenes I mean, in a picture about naming, it is very funny what she decides to do. She signs her name very prominently on a little crumpled piece of paper in the corner as if, you know, Zacharias has scribbled her name and then actually rejected it. And he's sort of busy writing the real name of his son and her name is sort of in the corner on this piece of paper. I wanted to talk about Artemisia and motherhood a bit because mm. because um, in the early days of her marriage, she, she, she gave birth to five children, is that right? Only one survived into adulthood. Yeah, so while she's in Florence, so during the seven years she's in Florence, she has five children in five years. So, 
you know, I think we have to remember that she is pregnant for a lot of the time in Florence and it's when her career is taking off. And she is the breadwinner as well. So there's an enormous kind of physical and financial strain on her in those years, despite everything. Um, so yes, only two of her children survive infancy and uh, Cristofano, as we see in one of the letters, dies in Rome. So, so her daughter Prudencia is the only one who grows to adulthood and who she trains to be a painter. I'm going to look at a picture specifically about painting now. So we're now in London, and this is a rather delightful detail, is that Artemisia was in this very city that we're standing in right now. Tell us about the circumstances that brought her here. So we don't know why, we, well, we know why. King Charles I was trying to entice her to London for a considerable amount of time. Uh, she kept putting him off. She even sent a picture to London ahead of her. But we know he dispatched her brothers twice to escort her from Naples to London. Um, but we don't know exactly when she arrived or when she left. We think she arrived in about 1638. And so I wanted to end the exhibition on this note on her London stay because... Obviously, this is the first exhibition dedicated to her in the UK. And it's also in London that she was reunited with her father. And I felt it was a lovely conclusion in a way. The first room opens up with her learning to paint in his studio. And then she comes to London and is reunited with him here. And when she comes to London, Orazio's working hard on effectively his last great commission for uh, the king. And that's the ceiling paintings for the Queen's House in Greenwich. And it's thought that she may have collaborated alongside him, although it's not documented there are definitely certain figures that, that would appear to be, you know, aligned closely with, with her style at this time. And while she's here, she paints this really striking self-portrait. Is it definitely a self-portrait? Um, well, I, I don't believe it's a self-portrait, but, but like, you know, many things, Artemisia defies any sort of categorisation. Um, I think what she does very brilliantly here is she combines these two different traditions. What we see is an allegory, it's a personification of painting... And she's following to the letter uh, what is laid out in a kind of iconographical handbook by Cesare Ripa, who describes painting as a, as a dark-haired woman with dishevelled hair, with shimmering robes, wearing a gold chain with a mask, you know, a palette in one hand, a brush in the other, uh, with inspired thought. You know, so, I mean, she's absolutely faithful to the text. But what she does, of course, and no male artist would have been able to do this, is she effectively sort of embodies that personification because she herself is a female painter. And she places. So basically, the personification of painting had to be a woman. Exactly, exactly. And then she places her initials very prominently beneath the painter's palette. So there's no sort of mistaking that we're meant to think of Artemisia when we look at this picture. Um, I mean, it's an endless debate about how much she's painted herself, both sort of literally and figuratively, in this picture. Um, but for me, I think it's more that it encapsulates what painting, what the art of painting was for Artemisia. It's, it's such a sort of energetic portrayal of painting. And I think that's, you know, I look at this and I always think of what she said, you know, I will show you what a woman can do. And in, uh, she's pulling a really strange pose, isn't she? I mean, she's got a blank canvas in front of her, mm. but her pose, she seems to be peering around something. What's, what's she looking at? Well, she's obviously peering around the canvas, presumably painting from a model, or is she painting from a mirror? I mean, it, it, this debate about whether it represents herself, she would need a very complicated series of mirrors to be able to paint herself from this angle. Um, but I think sometimes you can get a bit bogged down in sort of trying to unpick, you know, is it or isn't it a self-portrait? I mean, she, she's playing on the fact that she can conflate these two things and create this, this incredibly powerful image. I mean, it is one of her greatest pictures. 
So after London, she returns to Naples and lives there for the rest of her life, is that right? She does, and we, we don't know when she dies. We have her very last known picture in the show, um, which is dated 1652 and is painted in collaboration with another artist, another Susanna. I wanted to sort of bookend the show in a way with these two Susannas. Um, she may have died in the plague of 1656 that wiped out you know, a third of the population of Naples and many, many artists. Um, but we know very little of the circumstances around her death. Um, we know she was buried in Naples. The tomb was in San Giovanni dei Fiorentini, um, which was destroyed in the 18th century. But it was said, I love this, the slab on her tomb was said to just read, Haik Artemisia, here lies Artemisia, you know, no surname, as if she belonged to nobody. You know, I, I think there's something very, you know, I'm asked very often, why did you just call the exhibition Artemisia? Why didn't you put Gentileschi in there? And, and you know, for me, that's, it's wonderful. You know, she signs also in some of her pictures just as Artemisia. Does that, does that indicate her great fame at the point that she died? I like to think so. I mean, I do. I think also, you know, she'd built her reputation around the Gentileschi and the Lormi name. But I think this idea that when she died, she really did belong to no one. You know, she'd been alone pretty much for 25 years of her life. So... really powerful well thank you Letitia so much you're welcome thank you Artemisia is at the National Gallery in London from the 3rd of October to the 24th of January next year the excellent catalogue is published by the National Gallery and distributed by Yale University Press and priced £35 or $45. And you can see a reading list on Artemisia compiled by Letizia Treves for the Art Newspaper's book club at theartnewspaper.com. I'll be talking to Hetty Judah about Frida Kahlo in a moment, but first, here are a few of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. The uproar over the four-year postponement by four museums of an exhibition of the work of Philip Guston has gathered pace since last week. The museums, the National Gallery of Art in Washington, Tate Modern in London and the Museums of Fine Arts in Boston and Houston stated last week that they were postponing the exhibition as a response to the emergence of the racial justice movement that started in the US and radiated to countries around the world. The show, which was due to feature numerous paintings by Guston with hooded figures evoking the Ku Klux Klan, would be delayed, the museum stated, quote, until a time at which we think that the powerful message of social and racial justice at the centre of Philip Guston's work can be more clearly interpreted. That is, in 2024. Guston's daughter, Musa Meyer, and a host of critics and artists reacted with dismay to the news, and then a letter signed by more than 100 leading art world figures, including Ellen Gallagher, Isaac Julian, Julie Meretu, Adrian Piper, Henry Taylor, and Micheline Thomas, among many other artists, was published on Wednesday. It stated, We demand that Philip Guston now be restored to the museum's schedules and that their staffs prepare themselves to engage with the public that might well be curious about why a painter, ever self-critical and a standard bearer for freedom, was compelled to use such imagery. Two weeks ago, Rob Storr talked about Philip Guston on this podcast. You can find that wherever you listen to us. The Victoria and Albert Museum in London has announced its consulting staff on job cuts, with 10% of the workforce facing redundancy. More than 100 people in the retail and visitor experience departments will lose their jobs, with more redundancies to follow elsewhere. And finally, the Centre Pompidou in Paris could close for up to three years for essential maintenance work to be carried out on the famous 1970s building. The plan is one of two options under consideration by the French government. The other is to stay open, in which case the work would last for seven years. 
You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This October, Christie's 20th Century Sales celebrate the defining modern art era spanning to the cutting-edge contemporary art of today. The series of hybrid sales with enhanced live streaming will offer a new collecting opportunity ahead of the traditional autumn marquee sale week in New York. Basquiat, Cezanne and Joan Mitchell are just a few of the artists featured, in addition to masterworks by Twombly, Rocher, de Kooning and Picasso. Discover top works and collections, explore related features and browse sales online at christies.com slash 20th century. Welcome back. Before we get on to Frida Kahlo, don't forget to catch up with the art newspaper's other podcast, A Brush With, featuring four in-depth artist interviews at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon or wherever you're listening now. Now, the publisher's Lawrence King recently launched a new series of short biographies called The Lives of the Artists, a deliberate nod to the Renaissance art historian Vasari. Among the titles is the art critic Hetty Judah's biography of Frida Kahlo. I spoke to Hetty about the book. Hetty, I just wanted to start by asking you about the storytelling that Frida herself did, because right from the start of the book, you're keen to impress on the reader that like Diego Rivera, her partner, she was a mythomaniac and she enjoyed constructing her own identity. Yes, you get these wonderful reports of her holding court at dinners and in the garden of the Casa Azul and you get a sense that she just wanted, she craved attention, she thrived on it and you can see that in the way that she constructed her physical identity but she was clearly really good company as well and she was meant to have this kind of you know deep cigarette smoker's voice and this filthy laugh and she enjoyed swearing and she she had this kind of magpie like attraction to idiom and and so she you know if she could hold your attention by telling a better story she was going to make that story as exciting and as preposterous as she possibly could and so it you know when you go through all of these various interviews that happened with her you know towards the end of her life they become less and less plausible. And she starts to to come out with some really wild tales. And of course, the people who are interviewing her towards the end, you know, felt they'd discovered something marvellous. And she was coming out with all these revelations about how her high school boyfriend had actually been gay and had, had had all these affairs with boys at his school. And you kind of start thinking, well, I don't know, is she just saying this because she's just watching people's eyebrows go further and further up their foreheads and she's enjoying the impact that she's having on people? And so there's always this work to be done and kind of picking through things and going, well, you know, how much of this am I going to believe and how much am I going to take it with a pinch of salt? And you have to compare different accounts with one another and work out kind of whether there's a likely through path to things. But I suppose also that one of the attractions about Frida is precisely the sort of enigma of Frida. You know, that she she has constructed this identity and it is enthralling as, as a viewer and, and in this book as a reader because she is such an extraordinary character. And, and in a way, I guess I'm, I'm interested to know to what extent were you worried about demystifying her? I mean, one of the things I write about in the introduction is that I think everybody that starts writing about her begins to feel very intimate with her and they start to project the freedom that they want to find onto her. So some people find this terrible relationship with her mother and that she's terribly oppressed and that all of her creativity is quashed and that she's had this 
awful time as a teenager and other people find you know this woman that longed to have a child and who suffered terribly because she was childless and so I did try as I say to take things somewhat with a pinch of salt but inevitably I probably found the freedom that I was looking for too which is somebody who's um, not simply enigmatic but is capable of feeling very different often contradictory things within a short space of time who can at the same time feel passionately in love as if she's found the great love of her life, but she can feel that towards a number of people simultaneously and who can demand constancy of her lovers and at the same time be cheating on them with other people and flirting with a third person at the same time. Because I think it's actually terribly human and that sometimes when we write about people in a biography, we want to have a kind of party line on them and to know what kind of person they are. And I love the fact that she is a very contradictory person, that she believes in many ways, you know, certain things about herself which perhaps weren't necessarily true, that weren't borne out by her actions. There were obviously several landmark moments in her life, but the bus crash when she is in her teens is absolutely crucial because it seems to me reading the book that the, the, the character she was before then was an extraordinary already an extraordinary character incredibly lively etc and then and then there is this catastrophic moment so tell us about the the Frida before the bus crash and then what happens one of the things that I think is really important to communicate in this book is just how intelligent and well-read she was because we as kind of snobby West Europeans can quite easily come to her work that carries these um, naive and intentionally naive aspects and think that she's somebody that's a kind of simple, merry soul in her traditional outfits and not understand what it is that informs all of that. Her intention as a teenager was to study for a career in medicine. She wanted, if she was going to go into any kind of art career at all, it would be as a medical illustrator. And she was one of the first girls to go to her secondary school, which was the leading secondary school in Mexico at the time. She hung out with this very intellectual group. They were very naughty, but they were very well read. And they used to make you know, philosophical kind of jokes with one another. And they'd all be complaining about getting too stupid because they hadn't read X, Y and Z great work recently. And so she was an intellectual snob um, and she had very high expectations for herself. She was a tomboy. And really, the bus crash just came at this pivotal moment in her education. It was right before she finished secondary school. So she never left school. She never graduated from school. And her convalescence really started when, in the period when her peers, who were this bright, new post-revolutionary generation, were entering university and they were having a very political time at university. And they were carving out these young careers that would really see them kind of step into leading roles within this, you know, the new Mexico. And she was deprived of that. Um, and she later wrote about how the bus crash stole a career in medicine from her. Right. And all the things that she'd wanted to do somehow had been, you know, stolen from her by external forces. And yet, of course, there's the irony that it also, it gives us the Frida Kahlo that we know, essentially, that bus crash. I mean, it's remarkable that she survived, really, isn't it? Yes, many people in the crash did die. And she was... I mean, she was certainly um, in danger of having been left among the dying. She was in the crash with her with her teenage boyfriend at the time, and he really lobbied the ambulances to pick her up and to take her to hospital. 
And I mean, when she describes the pain that she was in in hospital, it's horrific. You know, she describes herself sweating with pain and vomiting with pain, and they didn't really have the resources properly to either examine her or to treat her. And because her parents didn't have much money at the time, even having been touch and go, she was discharged from hospital after only a month, um, probably much, much sooner than she should have been. And really within three months, she had to go back out to work because her parents needed needed help you know, running the household. And she'd run up a great debt with these medical bills. Um, but she'd, you know, she was smashed all over the place, um, in her spine, in her legs, um, terrible injuries to her abdomen that potentially stopped her from being able to carry a child later on. Yeah. And really that would, you know, to bedevil her for the rest of her life. And she'd also already suffered from polio as a child as well. So she wasn't in great shape going into that. And then it was in convalescence that she became a painter, essentially, wasn't it? Yes, she was. I mean, I think she was terribly bored and she was stuck in bed. And her mother had a local carpenter come and build an easel so that it was facing down from the roof of her bed. Basically, she was lying on her back and the easel was right above her face. And she was able to use her father's oil paints to start painting. And the first thing that she did was... The first thing that she painted, I think, was a self-portrait um, and then portraits of her friends. But it also very quickly became a way for her to engage with people as well. It wasn't purely a form of expression. That first portrait that she painted was for her boyfriend who was starting to distance himself from her. And she gave him a, a self-portrait so that she was always present with him, that he was always having to think of her because she was there looking at him in his space. And by painting her friends portraits they had to come into her space and talk to her and she would also you know constantly have this bond in other people's spaces so that she wasn't forgotten let's talk about diego rivera then because one of the things i i learned from your book is that she met him when she was very young i didn't realize quite how young she was when she'd first met him yes he was in this um extraordinary wave of mural painting in post-revolutionary mexico and they had this fantastic minister of education, Jose Vasconcelos, who you know, had this great intention to make the population of Mexico literate, but he knew that would take a while in coming. So he started off by commissioning the great muralists of the time, or the great artists of the time, to, to, to paint magnificent historic murals all around Mexico, which would help to educate the population. And one of the first places, almost a kind of testbed case for the mural paintings was this um the national preparatoria which is where frida was at school and so she went to high school at the age of 14 and all around the school there were these extraordinary works of art going up on the walls and the and the students were very naughty with the painters they used to set fire to the scaffoldings and things but she had this revolutionary work happening all around her so i mean immediately you have this connection between painting and politics which really informed the way that she pursued the rest of her life and the kind of king amongst the muralists at that point was um, Diego, who had just returned from Paris, where he'd been you know, hanging out with Picasso. And it's an extraordinary work. It's called The Creation, and it's in the, um, the theatre of the school. And because he was the, the great star among the muralists, it, the students weren't actually allowed to come and watch him paint. But she, Frida used to slip in, and she was fascinated by this great big kind of toad of a man with his, his vast belly and his kind of splayed feet and his big boots. 
Um, and he, like the other muralists, used to carry a pistol into work, which if you can imagine it in a school today, the idea of artists coming in, you know, packing heat. And she used to try and, you know, play tricks on him. And she she soaked the um, the step out of the theatre, hoping that he'd fall over. And he also, she also used to spy on him with the women that would come and pose for him for the work, because there are a few very beautiful women that, that are in this, this work, the creation. And so he'd have his girlfriends at the time coming in to pose as the various muses. And she definitely had a fascination with him. And of course, it's really hard to know, for, you know looking back at all of the anecdotes that they tell about each other, how much this is based in any kind of truth, because... Diego would tell these stories about, you know, how she she'd kind of catcall him while he was up on the scaffolding and tease him about his girlfriends. And also told the story about how she would tell all her friends at school that her greatest desire was to carry Diego Rivera's babies when she grew up. And this may, of course, just have been fabrication. But certainly, even in her letters of the time, she writes back to her mum saying, oh, I can't come home this evening. I'm going to, you know, stay at school and watch a, a lecture by Diego. So she was really, you know, she was fascinated by him, though not possibly in a romantic or sexual way at that point. Yeah, as you say in the book, all the way through is, you know, his amphibious nature is very clearly stated. But um, it is actually Frida who makes that that move, essentially, to, to, to that finally unites them. Yes, I think they'd been orbiting one another a little bit because Frida had joined the Communist Party and, Diego, I think, was one of the leading figures in the Mexican Communist Party at the time. So that's how their paths had crossed. And she recalled seeing him at a party where he'd fired his pistol at a record player and being terribly impressed by this, but rather terrified of him. And she clearly was quite fearless. And she one day kind of packed up a bundle of her paintings and went and tracked him down when he was painting one of his murals and kind of shouted up to him on the scaffolding and said, yeah, I know about your reputation and I know what you're like with women, but I really want your opinion and I don't want you to couch what you say to me just because I'm a woman and don't you even dare trying to come on to, come on to me because I'm not interested, but I want your frank opinion as to whether you think I have any future as an artist. And so he kind of, you know, waddled down from the scaffolding and looked at the work and was clearly enchanted both by the work and by her because he came to visit her at home the following week. It's so intriguing, isn't it, now to think now that Frida is by far the more famous artist of the two. It's it's difficult to conceptualise the full extent of how, his stardom at that moment because he has the MoMA retrospective, right? He is a massive, massive successful artist at that stage. He's a hugely successful artist. And if you look back through newspaper archives, he's, you know, he's extensively interviewed, he's extensively covered. And he was a very colourful character, you know, much like Frida. So he... You know, he loved impressing journalists with flamboyant lies. Um, and he was, he. I have to say that I think we partly overlook him because so much of his work is in situ in Mexico. And of course, when you go there, it is, his work is extraordinary. He is an, an absolutely astonishing talent and his frescoes are remarkable works, but they don't communicate very well in photograph and, you know, they obviously can't be transported. So... You know, I think he tends to to kind of get slightly sidelined in Europe. But when you're in Mexico, he still is very much seen as, you know, kind of king and his offspring, a certain kind of certainly royalty over there. 
And I think there has been a certain, it's a bit like the girlfriends of Brad Pitt. There's a certain kind of, you know, team Frida, team Diego tribalism with Frida's fans that they think that she's been terribly wronged by him. And they tend to think of him as being this great cheating lump. But I mean, they both behaved quite badly. I mean, he, he did behave unforgivably badly, of course, but he had such talent and he was so intelligent and so extraordinary. You can see why she was fascinated with him. But you, you stress that he did see her as an intellectual, maybe not equal, but he certainly valued her intellect and encouraged her work, right? And and, and tell me about that work, because I'm intrigued by, obviously, he's working on this massive scale, but she begins at, at, on a tiny scale with these images which, which recall ex voto images, these sort of Mexican images or ritual images in a way. Yes, I think certainly early on in their marriage, I think she was quite... Um, conscious of being the much, much younger wife of the great artist. And she was quite shy about um, presenting herself publicly as an artist. So certainly for the first few years when she was living and traveling with Diego, her work was really happening in private. And in her earliest works in their marriage you can certainly see his influence on what she's doing and it takes her a while kind of moving around and testing testing things out to start to come up with her own um, identifiable style if you like it really started to emerge when they were in San Francisco and she painted this extraordinary portrait of Luther Burbank who was um, a botanist who'd uh, created all kinds of hybrid vegetable varieties including blight resistant potatoes and she painted him growing out of the earth, but also growing out of essentially his own buried skeleton. So he becomes this hybrid man-vegetable. And his life and the achievements of his life are reflected in the way that his body metamorphoses from human to plant and back again. And I think this, I mean, I you know, you could use all kinds of, labels to try and identify her style whether it's magic realism whether it's surrealism but I think there's a certain kind of personal um, mythology and a personal worldview that informs her works that kind of has an you know elements of you know ancient Mexican art that have elements of uh, you know kind of naive colonial era art that have elements of, as you say, these um, ex voto paintings, which are kind of miracle paintings. They're thanks, they're giving thanks for um, for overcoming adversity, essentially, or they're, they're asking for help in overcoming adversity. And I think, you know, she painted at a small scale somewhat out of necessity, partly because they were on the road a lot, and partly because she was doing something quite private. She only painted two really large works, and they were certainly done with the intention of being shown in specific exhibitions. So there's the Two Fridas, which is a magnificent large work, which is in Mexico City. And then there is the Wounded Table, which is this famous lost work, which occasionally, um, in quotes, reappears. I think it reappeared uh, mythically a couple of months ago. Somebody claimed to have found it. But I think it, it disappeared on a tour of Russia at some point. It, I think it is very much to do with this this idea of having works that had a personal relationship with a person that they were made for, so that she was looking at you eye to eye in a room. They weren't really intended for museums. They were intended for personal contemplation. Tell us about the trajectory of her work, because, as you say, she, you know, there, is a, there is a distinct progression 
does she become more confident? Does her language shift tremendously? How do you see that trajectory? I mean, in a way, her greatest works were really achieved in quite a short space of time. I mean, really, they were in the 30s, the great works. So I think while she developed a more particular personal style when she was in San Francisco, she didn't paint a great deal while Diego was working on his great MoMA exhibition the following year. And she really started painting at pace just after the, the miscarriage in Detroit. So she suddenly in a rush came out with these extraordinary, very, I mean, you know, revolutionary work. So there was My Birth, which was, I think, the first depiction of birth in art from a woman's perspective. And it's it's bloody and brutal, and it shows her, her head, you know, recognisably hers with these joined eyebrows plopping out of her mother. And there's blood all over the bed, and her mother looks like she's dead. And her mother has actually just died at this point in her life. And then she also paints herself after the miscarriage in Henry Ford Hospital, but it's not a straightforward self-portrait. She's surrounded by, you know, the industry of Detroit. And there there are these symbolic images all around the bed, including a machine part, which to an extent describes how she feels that the human body is seen as a machine by the medical profession and how the human body doesn't necessarily um, conform to what's expected of it. But she discovered herself very early on because she's, you know, going through this painful process constantly of trying to walk and trying to, to, to do the things that she wants to do. And then the next very prolific period comes really when she's back in Mexico around the time that Trotsky is in Mexico and it's in preparation for her first and really her only major exhibition in New York at the Julian Levy Gallery. And what year is this? Well, the exhibition's in 1938. And so it's really between these two moments and so leading up to that she paints this extraordinary work, What the Water Gave Me, which is a view of her feet in the little bath in her modernist house before she moved back into the Casa Azul. So it's this extraordinary modernist building that was designed by Juan O'Gorman. And I you know, kind of stood in the bathroom and was imagining her feet there. But all around her feet are these little islands of, of life floating about. And it was this work was very admired by André Breton and it was published by him in one of his surrealist journals. And then, then I think she really then gets taken over by pain and it becomes too difficult really to do much. The connection with surrealism is always interesting in terms of... Uh, very individual artists and how programmatic surrealism and particularly Breton's vision for surrealism could be. Um, But of course, there are certain elements that are core to surrealism, which she very much subscribed to. So she does very much engage with communism, for instance. So tell us about surrealism and her her place in that movement, if you like. Well, I mean, she has this great line, you know, where she says, I never realised I was a surrealist until André Breton came to Mexico and told me I was. So I don't necessarily feel that she would have described herself as a surrealist, although she was shown in a number of surrealist exhibitions. So she was shown in a surrealist exhibition in MoMA in New York, for example. It's funny because she was quite antagonistic towards the surrealists, not necessarily to surrealism, but towards the surrealists themselves. And she thought that they were all theory and that they weren't men of action and that they would sit around endlessly in cafes discussing you know, the great revolutionary endeavours they would get up to while they were being simultaneously just supported by you know lots of rich women and she had a very bad time in Paris Um, she got quite ill and she was badly treated by Breton who didn't actually have a gallery to show her work and was a bit duplicitous in the way that he treated her Um, 
so I think she possibly wanted to distance herself from the Surrealists. Though she was very fond, actually, of Marcel Duchamp, um, who she saw as the only one who had his head screwed on properly. We can't really talk about the period where she's dallying with communism without talking about Trotsky. What's the truth about Frida Kahlo and Trotsky? Well, I went and visited Trotsky's grandson and he felt quite strongly that they hadn't actually had an affair. But he was, I think, about 14 at the time. So I'm I'm not sure quite how much he would have been aware of at the time. I, I, I can never quite tell whether it was just a flirtation or whether more happened. I think, you know, people have read all kinds of wish fulfillment into it. Certainly there was romance and there is a, a letter which um, I don't think exists anymore, which Frida sent to a, a friend of hers, which certainly sounded like it was extremely passionate from Trotsky, begging her not to leave and not to break up their relationship. I mean, being very naughty as part of me that thinks that she massively flirted with him and that they possibly had one night together when Trotsky moved out of his home because his wife had got fed up with him flirting with her, and that actually it was just so horrific that she just decided it was a very very bad idea, you know, um, where they'd had a very unsuccessful dalliance. Um, it may also have been that, you know, it was just her enjoying her powers as a seductress, but she certainly kind of played with him. I mean, even after they supposedly broke off whatever flirtation was going on she she presented him with this rather beautiful painting of herself dangling a note saying for Trotsky with all my love so I think she 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 enjoyed the power she had over him and he certainly you know had his head turned by her to a certain extent you say that 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 sort of last decade or so of her life was incredibly difficult um was she able to make much work in that period were there great works that did emerge I guess after she came back from Paris, one of the great works was The Two Fridas, which she painted when she just got back from Paris and Diego had asked for a divorce. In fact, they, they, they were apart for a while. Certainly, I mean, she she did continue to paint up until quite close to the end, but the works become quite clumsy and you can see that she's... that you know She was working, as you say, on such a small scale that... They were very precise and she was always a very precise artist and she starts to, you can see that she she starts to lose a grip on her brush to, to a certain extent. And I think one of the last paintings that she, I think one of the last paintings that she did was a self-portrait with Stalin. And she becomes very um, preoccupied by the idea that perhaps her art is too self-indulgent and that she should be doing more for the cause. Um, and she paints works talking about how you know, communism will, will heal the sick. And she also worries about being a burden on Diego and wanting to be able to support him more. So she does continue working, but her her subjects kind of slip around somewhat towards the end. Um, I mean, there's the last still life um, of the watermelons. Uh, but if you held it next to her early work, you wouldn't necessarily recognise it as having been by her. You know, it doesn't have any of that kind of sexuality or playfulness. I mean, her earlier still lives are were so sexual they were actually rejected by the people that commissioned them um, because they just looked like, a, you know, well, they're, they're, they're very sexual and feminine. I'll leave it at that. There's a lot of fruit. <laughs> um, let's talk about the very end of her life. She obviously had endured this incredible pain throughout her life. So tell us about her, her final years. I mean, I think her universe got smaller and smaller. So after the she reconciled with Diego after they'd split, 
one of the um one of the conditions with which she got back together with him was that that um they'd moved back together to her childhood home and it has a beautiful courtyard and she had various animals and birds that lived there and essentially this became her universe having been terribly cosmopolitan and she took great joy in teaching towards the end um but it became more and more difficult for her to go to college to be with her students and so they'd come and visit her and the things that she that were the great lesson that she taught the students was to learn to see the beauty in every day and that became you know the way that she approached the world and so she'd take huge joy for example in arranging things in the kitchen and having loveliness to look look onto and to reconcile herself with you know the beauty that she could construct that was available to her um, but she spent a huge amount of time in hospital. I mean, it was desperate. And there were always these doctors, some of whom you kind of wonder whether, you know, how reputable they were, that would offer her this the possibility that she might be able to walk again, the possibility that they could mend her. And one of her old friends, you know, describes this new industry that arose up around her of, um, you know, the industry of curing Frida. That it became that she was getting opinions from all sides and she'd pick the one that was kind of, you know, that sounded most appealing at that moment and so she was you know juggling these prolonged visits to hospital with these episodes when she'd kind of put on all the finery and she'd go out with her you know covered in this kind of armor of clanking rings and jewelry and hairdresses and and beautiful outfits and she would again kind of hold court and then it would exhaust her and deplete her and she'd have to go back and spend a lot of time in bed again and she was definitely buoyed up by, well, I think it was a bottle of Hennessy a day at a certain point. But she always wanted to have, you know, company and joy and parties and fiesta and, and to have that kind of light and dance around her. Well, Hetty, thanks for coming on to tell us about Frida. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Hetty Judah's book, Lives of the Artists, Frida Kahlo, is published by Lawrence King and is priced $12.99 or $17.99. The series also includes a biography of Artemisia Gentileschi by Jonathan Jones. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. Also at the top right of the page, you can find a link to subscribe to our various newsletters. And please subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already. Do give us a rating or review if you enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Junior Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Letizia and Hetty and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.